Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is planted like a tree by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. God, let our delight this morning be in you. May we find joy in the midst of sorrow in you. God, there is nothing on this world that can ever satisfy like you can. God, we long for you this morning. May, us, may, may we open our ears and our hearts to hear what you have to bring to us. God, we worship you. In your name I pray. Amen. Have a seat. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, and that can be found on page 811 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. morning. In case you're having trouble waking up this morning, thanks for braving the ice storm to, to come out and to, to be together here to worship the Lord. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity Community Church. Really excited to continue through the Sermon on the Mount with you this morning. Um, I, I don't know about you, but... Um, just to talk about my experience of, of what, what's been like to walk through Matthew, Jesus has a way of putting his finger on very comfortable sins, right? Um, he does that very effectively, um, where I often walk away both convicted and encouraged um, by his words. I think this morning will be no exception, um, especially for us Americans, um, you know, as a preacher, my temptation when the passage is about money is to sort of add a whole bunch of caveats to what Jesus says and to qualify what he says here and, until it just becomes borderline meaningless. Um, there are caveats, there are qualifications, but I'm going to largely avoid them this morning. 
Um, I think for us, let's work those things out in community group with friends within the church. And this morning, let's just confront the words of Christ and allow ourselves to be um, made uncomfortable. Um, Well, if you just join me in prayer, that'd be awesome. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for, uh, for your words. Um, you truly do have the words of life. Where else can we go um, to find words of life except to you? So, Lord, I, I pray that you would give me um, sensitivity as I preach, um, sensitivity to the many ways in which this um, passage applies to us. And for all of us here, I pray that you'd give us receptivity, that we'd be receptive um, not only to hear your word, to obey. Amen. So in in recent years, I think more and more people are kind of recognizing um, that the the promises of American consumerism are not being delivered on. Um, In other words, uh, we have for a long time and still do exist in this constant marketing culture, right, where we're constantly being told that we, we need this thing. You, this day, need this object which you really don't actually need, right? And so I think we're, we're becoming more and more conscious of that, um, more and more conscious of the fact that those who have a lot of stuff are not happy, um, and, and that, uh, you know, uh, that, in other words, stuff really doesn't fulfill us. Um, and so there's been sort of this, uh, the pendulum has swung the other direction, and so now what we're seeing is a group of people um, advocating what's called minimalism, um, the, the minimalist movement. And so the general idea is that um, in the minimalist movement, you, you're meant to declutter your life, um, declutter your home of objects that, that don't have real emotional or sentimental value to you, that don't bring any happiness. But even beyond that, shedding your life of um, unhealthy habits, of um, unnecessary habits, um, even poisonous friendships and relationships. And so the idea is that you're slowly paring down your life to, to only those things um, that actually have some sort of value to you. Uh, two of the kind of pioneers of this minimalist movement are uh, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. They're bloggers. Um, so they blog extensively about minimalism. And, and at one point they say this uh, in one of their blogs. Um, there isn't anything inherently wrong with owning material possessions. Today's problem seems to be the meaning we assign to our stuff. Today's problem seems to be the meaning we assign to our stuff. Um, I, I think there's, that that's a pretty profound statement and, and pretty undeniably true. So for them, the, the antidote is, is minimalism, right? Is this sort of decluttering process. Honestly, I think there's a lot about um, this kind of impulse uh, that, that really is good. That, like, yeah. Let's, let's get rid of all the unnecessary stuff. Let's not live these sort of bloated lives. And like Ashley and I right now are, are trying to do a lot of that in our apartment. Uh, you know, more for just like functioning. I mean, I think my son Edmund has probably forgotten about toys that he has. That's probably a sign that we can get rid of those toys, right? So we have too much. So Ashley and I are trying to implement this too. But the more that I, I read on minimalism, the more that I looked into it, I also started to notice something um, fishy, maybe. Um, 
Because as, as you shell away all this stuff, once you've sort of shelled away all the unnecessary habits or relationships, you've successfully minimized, right? So you're, you've successfully minimized your life. Now what? What have you actually minimized for? For a lot of these bloggers, they give two answers. Well, you've minimized um, for self-care, so that you can read more, write more, think, exercise. Um, you have more time. Um, you have more money because you're not buying unnecessary stuff, so use it for self-care. And then also use it to acquire experiences. Travel, do new things, do meaningful things, because experiences have been proven to to be more valuable than than goods. And so as I, despite my sympathies with minimalism, it began to strike me after a while that, that maybe minimalism also shares the same deadly flaw as consumerism. Whether you're acquiring goods or whether you're acquiring experiences, you're still consuming. But even more than that, whether you believe the secret is in having more or whether you believe the secret is in having less, either way, you still think the secret is in having the right amount of stuff. Right? And so Jesus has a term for that. Um, He calls it laying up treasure on earth. I think the truth is that we Americans, we, we really haven't figured out what's actually good for us. We haven't figured out what, we, what it is that we actually want at our, at our deepest level, but Jesus does. Um, and so this morning, he, he's going to tell us that there is nothing better for us than to absorb our hearts in the kingdom. There is nothing better for us than to absorb our hearts in the kingdom. He's going to give us three reasons um, to, to do that sort of work of reorienting our lives around the kingdom, to absorbing ourselves in it. And the first re- reason we should absorb our hearts in the kingdom is because our hearts are never more secure than our greatest treasure. Our hearts are never more secure than our greatest treasure. So if you'd read with me again, um, I think the page was 811. I'm using a different edition, so I have a different page number. Chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's the image that Jesus is working with here? What does he mean by laying up treasure? Um, well, in the first century, um, when Jesus spoke these words, um, Banks were not really a thing. Um, And so when you had valuable goods, when you had a treasure, um, you really just had to store it in your own home. And and we're not actually, you know, we're not really talking about like lockdown residences here. You know, like Mary and Joseph were not arming a a Securitech burglar alarm before going to bed. Um, These were vulnerable places. And so you're laying up treasure in in a hidden place because by, by doing so, you're hoping that you can hold on to it longer and, and kind of have that security in the future. So in order to really hone in on this, I, th- I think we have to ask the question, why do we lay up treasure? What does it mean for us to, to lay up treasure? So let me ask you this. What comforts you about having money in a savings account? Isn't it ultimately about security? 
about having a sense that, like, hey, I got three months' rent in the bank. If something bad happens, I have a cushion. I'm secure. If I can bolster that cushion even better, I'm even more secure. At the end of the day, it's about feeling less vulnerable. But money is really just a means to an end, isn't it? Just one of many resources. And I think we find security in in more ways than just money. Um, Maybe for you, security is found in relationships. And so your time, the time you spend with people, is a resource for you. That I'm going to put in this much time into this romantic relationship or in this friendship, because by doing so, I'm I'm ensuring that in the future, this relationship won't turn sour on me. It, what, something I, I notice a lot with millennials and, um, and Gen Xers is this kind of building of, like, almost social capital. Um, like, hey, I'm going to tweet about this justice issue so that the people around me know that I'm ahead of the curve of culture. When really what you're trying to do there is just to ensure that one day you won't become irrelevant. Your fear of becoming irrelevant is leading you to try to build up this persona online. Or maybe it's maximizing experiences. Maybe it's, it's trying to accumulate experiences for you and your kids. Because by doing so, you're trying to feel secure that when the end comes, you won't have any regrets. At the end of the day, any one of our resources are ultimately, any one of our treasures, they're ultimately to build up some kind of security against the future for us. And here's the thing, like, n- not all these things are bad. Like, if you have the means to have a savings account, that is a helpful thing, you know? Like, I don't think Jesus is against savings, account, but we, savings accounts, but we also need to realize that there really isn't much keeping the worst from happening. I mean, we can look back on the first century and say, wow, they were really vulnerable, you know, living in their houses made of, like, volcanic rock and just trying to hide their treasures in the corner. But we're just as vulnerable. We have to confront the fact that financial tragedy can strike, that relationships can fall apart, or people can die. That, that in a culture like ours, in the information age, you know, trends shift on a dime. You can be left behind. And, and the thing about experiences, you know, they've been proven to be more fulfilling, more lastingly fulfilling than goods. But at the end of the day, all experiences become memories. And they have to be replaced by greater, better experiences in the present in order to remain fulfilling. We're in just as vulnerable a place. And so it becomes clear why Jesus says that where your treasure is, where that resource is, there your heart is also. Our hearts are never more secure than our greatest treasure. And our treasure oftentimes is exposed, fragile, and subject to unknown circumstances at any time. So here's a concrete analogy. Let's imagine that you're buying stock in the company. You know, which I'm in over my head on this one because I don't don't really understand stocks very well, but I'm going to go for it anyway, and you can just bear with me. Um, But imagine that you're buying stock in a company, and it's a fine company. Um, Seems reliable. But the the key word there is seems. Your your funds are going into something that is 
just as, as vulnerable to change as anything else, and so what do you end up doing? You spend a lot of time checking whether the value is going up or whether the value is going down. Even paying attention to, is something crazy happening with this company right now on the news that should spook me into selling, right? Your, your mind becomes consumed by where your, your money is. Because moths could corrode it, rust, or <laughs> rust could corrode it, moths could eat it, or thieves could steal it, metaphorically. And so your heart, your inner life is vulnerable too. So before um, I began working at the church, I was working in nonprofit, um, and I, I was with Love Inc. And part of one of the ministries that we did, we we uh, took in furniture for those in need, and then we brought in local churches to deliver that furniture. Um, and so at one point, I was going on a on a pickup um, to a, a very very wealthy family to pick up some some items. Um, and so I I walk in the house. The the husband greets me, and this place is immaculate. I mean, like this giant towering fireplace, and like above it is this giant picture of this like victorious stag on a mountaintop. I mean, it was just, it was crazy, and all of it was pristine. I mean, just like cherry wood everywhere. It was just uh, like a, a beautiful home. Then I started to notice some things. The uh, the husband. Um, could not walk on the carpet without wearing these very specific shoes that he told me his, his wife had told me he needs to wear when he's on the carpet. Um, she was wearing the exact same pair of, uh, of shoes. The whole time that he and I were trying to move this desk out of their house, um, she's uh, just overwhelmed by worry that we're going to chip a wall, that we're going to hit the door frame. Um, we're getting it down the stairs. She, she's cruel. To this man, I mean, like, can't I mean, he can't move without her criticizing the way he's putting their home in danger? And then, as we're just about to get it out the door, um, he puts his end of the desk down um, and slides it accidentally against the hardwood and puts this tiny, borderline microscopic scratch into the hardwood. Um, I, I thought she was going to tear her garments. I mean, like, it was this this really intense reaction. Um, it, was so, it was so funny to me in a sad way. Um, like, he, here she is. She's trying to do this charitable thing. She's trying to do this thing for charity um, to feel good about herself. And I couldn't help but think how sad it was that her whole psyche, like the, the security of her psyche, could be upended by a scratch in the hardwood. She was as vulnerable as her treasure. And I can criticize her all I want. Um, but for me, when one of, one of my treasures is um, doing good work, interruption can have the same effect on me. I don't feel like I have that much of a place to judge. My heart is only as secure as my greatest treasure. See, Jesus isn't so much asking the question of, of how much are you laying up. He's not asking how much are you laying up. He's asking you where are you laying it up. In other words, to what are you trusting your future, your security? Where is your trust, really? Jesus says that we ought to lay up treasure in heaven. So what does that mean? What does it look like? to lay up treasure in heaven. 
um, later on in Matthew, Jesus will be approached by a rich young man. Um, this guy gets a lot of flack, but I think for us middle and upper middle class Americans, um, our ears should prick at this story. I think we have a lot in common with him. Um, he approaches Jesus and asks, um, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, do the commandments, right? So um, don't murder, don't commit adultery. He says, I've done all these things, but he still senses that he lacks something. So he asks Jesus. Um, and, and to the young man's horror, Jesus tells him, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So the question for me is, in order to lay up treasure in heaven, do I need to give to the poor? Is that, I don't think that's the right order. I think giving to the poor is the natural, inevitable, totally logical thing that someone does when they have laid up their treasure in heaven. That when you are finding your ultimate security in what Christ has secured for you on the cross, in his grace, in the coming of his kingdom, you just start to look at your resources in a totally different way. Because they're no longer sources of security for you. See, the, the rich young ruler, he could not pry his fingers off of his wealth because without it, he felt like his future was insecure. Following Jesus, if it meant giving up his wealth, following Jesus was way too risky. And yet what, what Jesus is saying to us today is that not following him is far too risky. That to lay up our treasures here on earth, that is a, a, a dangerous, risky thing to do. And that instead our ultimate treasure should be in the grace of Christ and the coming of his kingdom. In other words, bank on the kingdom, if I can use kind of a cheesy pun. The question here is about priorities. Um, David Niblack, uh, our, our former pastor, he, he once said to me that he thought Christians are those people for whom the most important things have been resolved. The most important things have been resolved for us in Christ. And so now we have this ability to actually look at our resources as things to be given away, to take risks in our life. To, to lay up treasure in heaven is to realize that the most important things have been resolved in Christ, and then to live like it. To live like my security is not in money. To live like my security is not in protecting my emotional life, so I'm not going to give my love away. To live as though, um, as though the greatest experiences in life aren't the ones that orbit around me. If we really understand this, we won't see our resources as existing just for us. If it's money, then we will use it to alleviate the pain of the poor. That is clear throughout the scriptures. If it's time, then we'll use it to come alongside those who are hurting. We'll use it to make disciples. If, it, if it's talent um, in our work, um, we will see our, our work and our talents as these resources to use for the common good of this world. And to, to even shape the culture that we live in. And if that resource is love, and every Christian has, has that as a resource, and we'll give it away. And here's the scary thing about what Jesus is saying. When we give these things away, Jesus doesn't promise us safety. Right? Like, we may lose money. 
We may lose loved ones. And that only hurts more if you have given love away to that person, if you've developed those attachments. And grief, when it comes, will be cataclysmic. It will be earth-rending. But what you will know when your treasure is in heaven is that God will make all things new. And your heart is as secure as he is faithful. So it's far better to absorb our hearts in the kingdom because our hearts are only as secure as our greatest treasure. Secondly, it's far better to absorb our hearts in the kingdom because our hearts will come to resemble our greatest treasure. If, you, if you'd read with me in um, 22 and 23 here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. Okay, so Jesus deploys an illustration here. Um, and I have to be honest, it was pretty tough to get my mind around this. But then I felt really comforted because it seems like it's been tough for every commentator to get their mind around it. There's lots of disagreement about interpretation for the, this moment, and so I felt a little bit better. Um, so I'm just going to kind of give it my best shot <laughs> and um, kind of let you know where, where, where I've arrived with it. Um, and then if you want to know the right interpretation, you can talk to Steve Bryan. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm going to take a crack at it and um, you know, prayerfully weigh it, you know, um, think it through. So I think the best way for me to approach this would be for us to, to really kind of just piece it apart together. So if you don't already have an open Bible, I encourage you to open one now. Um, again, I think the page was 811. Um, and, and we'll just kind of work through it um, for a minute or two together. So in this illustration, the body is pictured as a darkened room. Okay? So the, the body is this darkened room room. But the body has a source of light. So there's this organ in the body that has the function of lighting up the darkness inside. And Jesus says that that organ isn't the heart or the liver or the pancreas or whatever. It's the eye. So the eye is the thing that lights up the body. Okay, so our, our body, our self, our inner life, is illuminated by the eyes. And if the eyes are healthy, if they're sound, if the eyes are, wor- are working, they're functional lamps, then the body's full of light. So if the eyes are doing what they're supposed to do, will be full of light. If they're not doing what we're, they're supposed to do, will be full of darkness. So the question for me is, why out of all the organs does Jesus choose the eyes as the lamp? Why are the eyes the thing that light up the body? Well, what do eyes do? They see. They look. They direct our attention to something. So the, the eyes fixate on, on things. So, so what, what, if, what if this is it? When the eyes are functioning, in other words, like in the language of the metaphor, when our eyes are focused on sound, healthy things, in other words, the kingdom, on Christ and his kingdom, then our eyes are looking at what they're supposed to look at. They're, they're functioning the way they're supposed to function. And as a result, that changes something about us. That our, our inner life 
is entirely molded and shaped and lit up and animated by whatever it is we're looking at. And so we should look at things that are bright. We should look at things that are bright. So my, my wife sent me this article recently um, that was in the New York Times called Why Do We Experience Awe? What these researchers did, they, um, they took groups of people and they, they reworked this experiment in a bunch of different ways. And, and every single time it came up with the same results. So they would take a group of people and they put them in a warehouse. And then they would take another group of people and they'd put them in like the Redwoods. Um, and they would just allow those people to kind of do what they do. But one group was in a very kind of controlled, uh, you know, very utilitarian, cold environment. And the other group obviously was in this place of incredible beauty, um, a place of, of wonder. And then they would introduce something into, into the environment. So what they're trying to measure is, is their connection between awe and ethics. And so what they would do is they'd have something go wrong. They would have somebody walk in and maybe like trip or hurt themselves or drop a valuable object. And without fail, those who had spent the past few minutes contemplating beauty, um, who had spent the past few minutes full of awe or wonder, Without fail, they were the quickest to help the person. Whereas those who were in the warehouse would be very slow to help if they helped at all. And so th- there was this enormous connection that they, they found between, um, between what a person was looking at, what they were fixated on, and how they would actually act in the environment. Um, so when they saw beauty, they responded with care and compassion. They were animated with what seemed like a beautiful way to live. Like they lived consistently with the beauty around them. Hey, it's beautiful for me to care for this person, so they'd leap into action. I I think something similar is going on here, that as Christians, we should not be awe-deprived, right? In the person of Christ, we're presented with the pinnacle of of beauty, the pinnacle of of goodness and truth. And and spoiler alert for, for next week, when we seek the kingdom, right, when our gaze is fixed on Christ and, and, and his kingdom, on the joy uh, that he brings, when we jump in even now and, and look for ways to make the world around us uh, look a little bit more like the, the rule of God, when we do that, we will find ourselves animated by hope. It changes us. Our hearts will come to resemble the things, or will come to resemble our greatest treasure But there's a dark side to this, isn't there? Jesus says that if the light in you is darkness, then how great is the darkness? So imagine that your eye, instead of looking at the kingdom, is looking at a dimmer love. That the the lamp of the body isn't really putting off all that much light. That if, if the thing that we're fixated on is not the glory of Christ and his kingdom if our ultimate priority in life is not the glory of Christ and his kingdom, then our hearts, the brightest part of us, will just be a flickering wick in an underground cavern. Our hearts will come to resemble our greatest treasure. We can never have more light than the lamp. So if we are are fixated on a dim thing, we will live dim lives. So I went back and forth on whether to say this, 
So when I look at a lot of evangelicalism today, and I try to figure out what it is that a lot of us are fixated on, um, I think we've been way more fixated on the American dream than on Jesus. Um, And we've come to look like it. And I'm not exempting myself from that. Like, there's nothing uniquely Christian about my transaction history. And I just feel more and more conviction um, that Jesus expects my discipleship to cost more. That I must, on some level, be laying up treasure on earth. Does the size of our living spaces, does the way we spend our time, do these things look like they are being gradually discipled more and more into the image of Christ? Or for all intents and purposes, are we just American? Are we trying to maximize our enjoyment of life at the expense of true meaning? Because at the end of the day, the reason to fixate on Jesus is because, like speaking for myself, there's nobody else that I want to look like. Right? Like, I want to disciple myself to Jesus because I want to look like him and I want to live in the world he's bringing. Don't settle for dim beauties. Christ is all in all. There's nothing better for you than to absorb your heart in the kingdom because your heart will come to resemble your greatest treasure. Lastly, absorb your heart in the kingdom because your heart can't have it both ways. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus presents us here with, um, with sort of this image of, of, uh, of kind of like a slave. I mean, the language that he's using for the employer is master. Um, but in either case, it's this idea of a disciple who is trying to satisfy the demands of two masters. One is God, one is money, um, and failing to do it. And, and here, see, see the word money as, as more symbolic, right? Money is always a means to an end, like we've been talking about. So in, in that word money, see security, comfort, social leverage, um, a sense of freedom, whatever it is, that you, you cannot serve God and money. So, so all these things, security, comfort, if you, if you have the means to get them, they can, they can be wonderful, good things. And, and there's... A lot of moments in, in the scriptures where, um, where they're seen as just great causes to be thankful to the Lord. Um, but as soon as we receive these gifts, not as gifts, as soon as we take them for granted, if they're used only for our own gain, they can be wildly dangerous. And Jesus literally says that if you're serving or running after these things— Like, hear me on this. If they are your highest priority, you cannot serve God. You literally don't have the ability to both prioritize these things 
and to prioritize the kingdom. You have to make a choice. You don't have it in you to do both. And sometimes the more we accumulate of those things, even though they're good things, the more we accumulate, the harder it is to part with them, the easier it is to make them our highest priority. I want to share this statistic. Before I do, I want to, this is one of the few caveats I'm given this morning, right? Like, this is a statistic about the way that the rich versus the poor give in America. I've met incredibly generous, loving, selfless, gracious people who are also filthy rich, live in giant homes, um, and yet, you know, when I view the way they live, I could see them just as comfortable in a studio apartment because it's so clear their contentment is in the Lord. So I want to say that, um, that I've met people, I've known people like that, but very few. In 2013, Ken Stern uh, reported in The Atlantic, um, here's the quote from the article, In 2011, the wealthiest Americans, those whose earnings were in the top 20%, contributed on average 1.3% of their income to charity. By comparison, Americans at the base of the income pyramid, those in the bottom 20%, donated 3.2% of their income. And then here's the quote. One of the most surprising and perhaps confounding facts of charity in America is that the people who can least afford to give are the ones who donate the greatest percentage of their income. That was startling to me. Now, there's a lot of contributing factors. Um, The Atlantic went on to to respond to this and to write more on it. Like, typically, if you are a person of means, you, you don't have visibility on those who are in the greatest economic pain. So that contributes to where your money's gonna go. But at the same time, I think what we have to recognize that if, is this, if we aren't vigilant to be serving God with our resources, we will come to serve our resources. If we aren't vigilant to be serving God with our resources, we will come to serve our resources. You cannot serve God and money. And see, the interesting thing, Jesus isn't pointing out the way that God is dissatisfied with the person who's trying to serve God and money. Though I'm sure that God is, is dissatisfied. Instead, Jesus wants our attention to go someplace else. He wants us to see what happens to the heart of the disciple who's trying to do this. He wants us to see the way they become double-minded, that the demands between God and money start to stretch them in two directions, and eventually their true loyalties start to show up. In 2014, uh, The Atlantic ran another article. Um, It was called, Why Kids Care More About Achievement Than Helping Others. And so what this this group from Harvard did is they took about 10,000 middle school and high school students, and they they did this massive survey to try to measure um, what they saw being communicated to them. What was more important to their parents and teachers, in other words? Was it empathy and caring for others, or was it their personal, individual achievement and happiness? And far, far away, the overwhelming majority, 80% um, of of all the kids that were polled um, said that the priority of my parents and teachers is my personal achievement and happiness, and that caring for others is not a priority despite the fact 
that 96% of the kids said that their parents talk about caring and empathy. You see the imbalance there? There was a whole lot of talk, but not a lot of action. The article says if parents really want to let their kids know that they value caring and empathy, they must make a real effort to help their children learn to care about other people, even when it's hard, even when it does not make them happy, and yes, even when it is at odds with their personal success. See, it's clear that that for these parents and teachers who were surveyed, whatever it was they said, the truth was showing up in how they lived. Their loyalties surfaced. And I think the the biggest part of the dilemma shows up there at the end when, when the writer says that at times caring for others will require something of these kids that will not be fun, that, that will not be comfortable. Maybe it won't be even fair to them or advantageous. And a real commitment to caring will mean that they lose something. And that parents, and I, I relate to this, like that would be a hard thing to lead Edmund and Lydia to do. I think something similar is happening here. Your loyalties will show up. Maybe the real reason why a disciple can't serve God and money is because God and money are asking the disciple to do completely opposite things. Money will tell us to look out for ourselves. God will tell us to love our neighbor. Money will tell us to take what we deserve for our hard work. God will tell us to do something useful with your hands so that you will have something to share with those who are in need. Ephesians 4. Money will tell us that we need to minimize risks, right? By storing away as much as we can, God will tell us that any life not built on the radical commands of Jesus will fall apart. Matthew 7. Money will tell us that unless we maximize our comfort and our experiences, we will die with regret, but God will tell us that anyone who would keep his life will lose it. And anyone who would lose his life for the sake of Jesus will find it. Trinity is better for us to absorb our hearts in the kingdom because our our hearts can't have it both ways. As I wrap up, I I want to acknowledge the fact that there are some in our congregation um, who are not presently people of means. There are some who are really struggling financially, and, and for those of you, I just ask that you would not let the sermon be a burden to you or to heap up shame on top of Um, what you're experiencing. That's not my intention this morning. Um, The reality is, I I think, in in a lot of ways, you might be better equipped to obey these words than anybody. Because for you, you already know that life is insecure. If you're struggling financially, you already know how fragile life is. If you're in, in financial survival mode right now, you already know that laying up treasure on earth doesn't do you any good. So my prayer for you, A, is that you would be delivered out of that place of financial instability. And my other prayer for you is that when, if and when you are delivered, you know, if the Lord brings you out of that, and I pray that he would, that you would not forget the Lord when you come into a place of stability. 
but that even then you would be laying up treasure in heaven. But I think for the majority of us, um, we are people of means, if we're honest. I think that for, for some of us, if we don't feel like we're people of means, um, it's, it's actually because we're trying to maintain this lifestyle of maximal enjoyment. Um, to get the biggest house that we can or, or the most comfortable living space or whatever. But the truth is that we, we actually are people of means. And if you're sensing, as I am, the need for repentance, um, then the question is, like, where do I begin? You know, we, we often, when we're faced with a hard challenge from the Lord, um, we often take this kind of, like, inventory of our emotional life. You know, like, where's my heart right now? Do I actually want to do this? And we say, well, right now, my heart really would not be in this, you know. I don't want to be a hypocrite after all, so I'm going to wait until I pray myself up into this sort of frenzy of like, we're going to do this, and then at that point, I will obey, right? And it's interesting to me, in this passage, Jesus actually has it the other way around. Um, He he approaches things in the opposite direction. Um, Lay up your treasure in heaven because your heart's going to follow your treasure. That, like, if you don't sense that your heart is in this, make an uncomfortably large donation to charity. If you, if you sense that your eye is fixating, fixated on a lesser beauty than Christ, don't wait until that thing loses its appeal. Wrench your gaze away. Take it away. And look to Jesus. And remember always that that the grace of Christ was not just to save you from hell, but to save you from lesser, inadequate loves. What I mean by that is lesser, inadequate idols. And that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. You're not starting out perfect. You'll end perfect. In glory. You have the greatest treasure secured for you in the cross of Christ. So please, all of us, let's not settle for moth-eaten, rust-corroded, soon-to-be-stolen goods. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, um, we first just repent. Um, our American life has been built on consumerism and the church has just blindly followed suit that we we have just baptized consumerism we have baptized image and God there's only one image that we should be modeling ourselves after and it is the image of Christ so I pray Lord that um that you would teach us, that we would watch you, that we would apprentice ourselves to you. Lead us, Lord. And I pray that as we, um, that we would recognize that laying up treasure in heaven, it isn't just this future security um, in glory, although it's certainly not less than that, but that we together as the church, we are each other's safety net. 
So bring us as a church into that kind of closeness, that kind of intimacy, that we would be so aware of each other's needs that we could be each other's safety net. And then, Lord, I pray that you would lead us into lives of radical generosity because we know that the most important things have been resolved. We love you, Lord. Amen.